Before I came to the North Country, I was the host of a daily interview show in Milwaukee. And in doing that, I interviewed a lot of authors and read all of their books. I can't imagine going into an interview and not having done the homework. But as a result, I read hundreds of books a year, but practically all of them for work. Like someone would ask me if I'd read, say, The Grapes of Wrath, and I'd respond that unfortunately no, because John Steinbeck wasn't doing a book tour through Milwaukee. I have much more time to read on my own now, which means that I'm going to take our first guest seriously when she says I need to read Barbara Kingsolver's latest book. And after you hear the interview, you'll probably agree. We'll hear more in just a few minutes. Plus, a conversation with Shankar Vedantam, host of Public Radio's Hidden Brain about healing and resilience. And a Saratoga Springs woman works to give artists new tools to help them succeed and keep making art. Northwards is next from North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. My son is a sophomore in high school, and his love for reading has kind of wavered back and forth over the years. But this year, thanks to an English teacher he loves, the stack of books, I would say on his nightstand, but really it's on the corner of the couch he inhabits, the stack of books has grown again. I think back on my English teachers through school, and they were really the reason that books have always been huge in my life. Mrs. Quillen, my sixth grade teacher, read a couple of books to us out loud that are still such a big part of who I am that if I see a copy of one at a book sale, I almost always buy it. But it's easy to forget that English teachers don't just turn us on to books. They are voracious readers even outside the classroom. Case in point for today's first guest. Kelsey Francis teaches English in Saranac Lake. She's also a storyteller you might have heard on the Howl podcast. But not long ago, she read a recent book that was so compelling that it led her down a path she never expected. Kelsey Francis, welcome to Northwards. Well, thanks for having me, Mitch. Uh, so let me start, actually, by having you rewind the tape of your life uh, for some months can you share what it was about Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead that, that so struck a chord with you? Sure. Um, well, I've been, I've been a big fan of her work uh, really since I was in college. And so last year when this book came out, um, I knew some friends were reading it, and I didn't get a chance to read it until like late winter, early spring. And honestly, it was from the very first page, uh, the narrator, Demon's voice, instantly struck me as one very familiar to me as a high school English teacher of 23 years. <laughs> I recognized so many of my former students in his voice. Uh, for people who have not read it, present company included, although I'm, I'm going to have to rectify that, um, can you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of the novel? Sure, sure. It's a first-person narration um, from the point of view of a young man who goes by the name of Demon. That's not his real name. It's Damien, but everyone calls him Demon. And he lives in the southwest corner of uh, Virginia, very, very southwest corner, in a rural area um, in Appalachia, not unlike our own here in the North Country. And he's had a heck of a life. He is an orphan. He goes in and out of multiple foster care uh, homes, and struggles in school, and ultimately battles uh, an opioid addiction, and just really has one struggle after another after another. 
and as you're reading it, you just, you can't believe this kid is faced with such hardship, and yet every bit of it is incredibly real. So that's sort of a, a summary. And, and we should we should note that this is a, a modernized, Americanized retelling of of Dickens here, correct? Yes, of David Copperfield. Yeah, and uh, Barbara Kingsolver has just a fascinating story about how she was inspired to write the book. Uh, she'd been trying to write sort of the, what she called the great Appalachian novel and couldn't find a way in and was actually uh, on another book tour in England and stayed at Bleak House, which is where Dickens wrote David Copperfield. And it's now a bed and breakfast. Hmm. And while she was staying there, she describes that she was sitting at his desk and sort of was visited by um, the ghost of Charles Dickens. And he told her to let the child tell the story. And she would just like have this aha moment to um, to let, in this case, Demon tell his own story. Well, and kind of kind of amazing to think that in some ways uh, Dickens had had kind of paved the way for the great Appalachian novel. Yes, yes, it's it's pretty remarkable. She said he essentially was her, you know, the framework that she ended up using, and how how great of a writer he was. <laughs> lay out that framework for her. Uh, and it, it won or it, it shared the Pulitzer Prize for fiction uh, earlier this year. Um, and I gather then it was important for you to, to share this book with your colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just could not stop thinking about uh, the book after I finished it and was recommending it to people and then went to my school district and said, you know, could we get a few copies for just professional development or you know, see if there would be some people interested in reading it. And it turns out I was actually the second person who had uh, mentioned it to uh, an administrator. And another colleague had already said, you know, I think this book would be really, you know, would be a great read for our staff. And so, yeah, we basically, it was like pitch the idea to the staff and see if anyone's interested. And I thought it might be just me and a few other, you know, uh, book nerds, English teachers. <laughs> uh, but 75 staff members signed up to read it. Wow. Did this have any precedent? Had you all gotten together and had like a, a school-wide read for, for faculty and staff in the past? Never. This <laughs> is a, the first time, and uh, it just blew everybody away, really. And, and I'm so glad that um, this was the first book. It just, I, I think it, it really set the bar <laughs> very high. <laughs> Well, and and beyond that, uh, the the bar was raised even higher because you wrote a letter to Barbara Kingsolver. W what did you tell her? Yeah, so once I knew that my school district was on board with this as a professional development opportunity, I was just overwhelmed by the number of people who were interested. And then she won the Pulitzer. And I said, oh, my gosh, I, I just I'm going to write to her because maybe maybe we're the first school doing this. Maybe we're not, but I'd need her to know how much this book might as well have been set in the North Country. It, it mean, it just, we have so much in common. And so I went on her website and learned that she only takes snail mail and uh, told her what the book meant to me. I told her what my school was doing. I told her how much of, um, how many students just like Demon I have taught over the years and just thanked her. And so I, I dropped it in the mail and then just sort of forgot about it. <laughs> and then two months later, she wrote back to me. 
Well, and it's weird because we live in this in this time when there really are for most I'll say celebrities or 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 public figures ways of reaching out to them whether whether we send them a tweet or or comment on their Facebook page or uh, or or some other way that you had to sit down and write an honest to God letter seems significant. Yeah, yeah, I have never done anything like that before. <laughs> it's not that I've ever written to a famous author before. I don't know what. I, this book just compelled me to do it. I just, I felt like I needed her to know and know, let her know what my community was doing, what my school district was doing, because I thought maybe there's, maybe there's other school districts out there that would be interested in doing something similar. So. Well, and, and then the irony is that she writes back to you and you find out kind of the opposite. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a letter from her at the very end of June. Well, she actually emailed me back because I had included my email address. Uh, and she wrote me a lovely response uh, saying how thrilled she was to hear what we were doing and to know what the book meant to me. Um, and then I got to this line where she said, you know, I have a favor to ask of you. And she explained that in her community, the book was to be taught in the AP English literature class. And her publisher had secured copies for that teacher. And then those copies were sort of mysteriously confiscated. Uh, with no sort of like public discussion. And so she asked if I would had time and was willing to write a letter to the superintendent of that school district explaining to him what the book meant to me and what our whole staff was doing, you know, a big portion of our staff was doing, and really just asked me to advocate uh, for the book's value. This I, is the woman that won the Pulitzer Prize asking you to do this for her. Yes, exactly. Um, I joke that, you know, when she first when I first got to that line that she had a favor, I thought, oh, my gosh, does, does she need a kidney? Because <laughs> I'll do whatever she asks. Um, anything. Uh, this was just it just blew me away. So I immediately responded and said, absolutely, I will do this. And I, you know, just asked for a little bit of information, um, you know, about you know, to who it should be addressed. And, and then I, I actually spent some time online looking up that school district to see what it ha had in common with mine. I wanted just demographics and learned that we have a lot in common uh, with the kind of kids that we're teaching and the kind of struggles that uh, families are having in, in our communities. And so uh, my letter to that superintendent uh, really sort of tapped into that, like, look, we have a lot in common here. And and this is the value of this book. I think not only your staff should read it, but I think your students, your eight, you know, 12, these are 12th grade English students taking a college level course really deserve to see their, their stories, their community in the literature they read. You know, I just, I hope you reconsider. You're, you're, you're an English teacher and uh, presumably you follow uh, the news of, of book bannings uh, pretty closely. I would imagine that it was probably more of a surprise to hear back from Barbara Kingsolver than to hear that, uh, that a book had been banned. Exactly. Exactly. It's, I mean, it breaks my heart to say that it, it's not that surprising, um, but to think that this book would be banned in the very community in which it's set where the author lives and yes it is addressing painful hard excruciating topics but there, it's it's 100 percent real every bit of it i guess bring us up to date um i i i understand you have not 
heard directly from the superintendent, but maybe maybe things have changed in that district? Yes. So when I followed up, basically we just sort of state, I asked to be, you know, please keep keep me posted on how things develop. And uh, right before my uh, staff met uh, about, um, I guess, just over a week ago to discuss the book, I, I reached out to her office to find out if they had ever heard from the superintendent to see if the book was allowed. And um, she wrote back to me and said that uh, while they never heard from the superintendent directly, that they did get word from the teacher that the books had been returned. And so they took that as a huge success, um, which is exactly had been the goal to begin with, to put books in kids' hands and, you know, just thanked me for, for you know, what little I, I did. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, um, you know, if it, if it helped at all. Um, I'm sure letters from her also helped, but um, it, I just feel really lucky that she included me in part of this. We were we were talking about this um, issue uh, around the station, and um, you know, it's funny. You and I actually went uh, to the same um, school districts in uh, suburban Maryland, where. Uh, certainly, when I was there, there were not a lot of uh, there weren't there weren't any books being banned. But I, you know, I wonder if this whole thing has you thinking back to your own high school days and the kinds of things that were controversial in those days and how they were handled versus versus what we're seeing today. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I I have reflected a lot lately as a as an English teacher. And when I hear of all these books being challenged and banned across the country, and I, you know, that was not remotely ever something that came up um, in the district where I grew up, and and even where I've now worked for 23 years, um, until until you know it hit the news a few few years ago that this starts to happen, and and um, it's just shocking to me because it feels like we're going back to an era that it's an era I've never even really known. <laughs> Um, in my lifetime, and uh, just really uh, leaves me quite speechless when I think of the the irony of of banning a book, and yet children are allowed to you know walk around with a very very powerful tool in their pocket <laughs> that will give them access to really anything and everything, but we have to ban books. It's just the irony of that is really <laughs> stunning. <laughs> It, it it does seem to say something about the district where you teach that uh, they were able to find the money to buy copies for every staff member that wanted one. Yeah, yeah, I I couldn't believe it, um, <laughs> and yet it also speaks to their willingness to support you know ideas coming from the staff, which I really appreciated. I I I feel really strongly that some of the best um, professional development comes from what teachers are asking they need for and can provide, you know, in-house. And this book, because it had so much in common with our own community, I thought would speak to, to all sorts of people. We had, um, you know, teachers K through 12. We had principals read it. We had uh, administrative assistants read it. We had teaching assistants read it. So, you know, all these individuals who work with and um, have a role to play in the lives of kids uh, read this book, and it, it 
uh, it had a profound effect on all of them. The feedback has been remarkable. I, I was just going to say, obviously, they are not here to uh, to characterize their own responses, but but did you get the sense that they they felt the same way about this book that you did? I did, yeah, yeah. Um, and we had a just you know an evaluation form at the end, and really all of the responses have been. Um, 100% this book was relevant to my work um, and the importance of, of just deepening the well of empathy, as I'm calling it, that, you know, reading this book and seeing this whole child's life really play out on the page and, you know, understanding the complexities of all of these issues um, it was just incredibly moving. Um, and everybody's saying, you know, I think we should do something like this again. So hopefully, hopefully we can. But puts a lot of pressure on you to find the right book, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe somebody else. <laughs> but no, I would do it again. I absolutely would do it again. But yeah, I don't know if we can ever top Eden Copperhead. I really don't. <laughs> it does, you know, I, I mean, I think back to when I was a kid and, and, and you know, the, the real controversial books were, they were all by Judy Bloom. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. I remember it that. It seems too. like such an innocent time. Yeah. Well, listen, Kelsey Francis, it's a, a remarkable story, and I'm so glad we got to, to hear about it from you. And, uh, you know, in a, in a time when uh, we hear about so many frustrations that teachers are facing in various circumstances, it's, it's really nice to hear from someone who seems to have had such a, a positive uh, part of their teaching career happen to them. Well, thank you. I, I really feel this, is, this whole experience has been a real highlight both uh, just as an educator and as, as a lover of books, for sure. Kelsey Francis is an English teacher at Saranac Lake High School. She and a colleague led an effort to have the school's staff read the book Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. A quick break now and then a chat about mental health and healing ourselves with Public Radio's Shankar Vedanta. This is Northwards on North Country Public Radio. NCPR's Northwards is supported by The Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway and Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook, and by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center and its surgical services team performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures, claxtonhepburn.org. More of Northwards Now, I'm Mitch Tyke. I remember when we first started seeing commercials for pharmaceutical drugs, uh, prescription medicine on television, products with unlikely names, but even more so, products to treat conditions that I didn't know existed. The one that jumped out at me way back when these commercials started was something called generalized anxiety disorder. And I remember thinking back then, like, who is just anxious all the time? These days, that is not a question I would ask. In fact, I kind of wonder who isn't anxious all the time. It seems like the last few years have been a roller coaster that's taken us from the heights of anxiety and plunged us into the valleys of fear and grief and left us hoping to reach that flat stretch of ennui. In some ways, it's maybe a little comforting to know that many of us are dealing with struggles and anxieties, whether they've emerged since the early days of the pandemic or their long-standing traumas that plague our ability to cope in the world. 
As useful as it is to know that we're not alone, what comes next? The public radio podcast and weekly show called The Hidden Brain has been devoting the entire month of November to a series it calls Healing 2.0. Shankar Vedantam is the host, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. So I perceive this, um, but is there evidence out there, like actual evidence that we can put our finger on that says that this really is a more difficult, more anxious time than, than other times in the recent past? You know, it's a great question, Mitch. I'm not sure there is a way to really test the question of whether this time that we're going through right now is worse than other times. I, I will just say anecdotally, it feels that way. It feels like when I read the news or I listen to the news every day, uh, my heart feels heavy at the end of it. It feels like there's a lot of hurt and 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 uh, and horror in the world right now. And I think it is true that uh, the season, the time of year that we're in, it's also a, it's a time of celebration and gathering, no doubt. But I think it's also a reminder to people about years gone by and about uh, maybe friends and family that are no longer at the dinner table with them. And so it's a bittersweet moment for many people. And so our team at Hidden Brain said the combination of those two things prompted us to say, let's pull together all the interesting research on healing and trauma and put it together in one package that we're calling Healing 2.0. Well, and I know one of the subjects you're tackling, I think the, the one you're starting with, actually, yes. is how we tell the story of ourself to ourself. What are yes. you getting at with that question? Well, I think many of us think about our lives the same way that, you know, you sit down at a theater and watch a play. You know, you, you think of yourself as being an audience member to your life. Things happen to you. You observe them. You experience them. Uh, but but they are happening to you. You're just the observer. Um it is the case that we are, of course, the, you know, if you will, the audience to our own lives. But in important ways, we're also the author of our own lives. And we can play an authorial role, especially in the way we tell the stories of our life. So if you imagine your life as a, as a novel or, or as a book, you know, that, that life can be broken up into multiple chapters. And one of the important insights that we explore in this uh, first episode, which we're calling Change Your Story, Change Your Life, is that where you put the chapter breaks in your life seems to play a profound role in your mental health and well-being. So if your chapters generally begin on a positive note and end on a negative note, so you know you maybe you start the chapter, I fell in love, I was so happy, things were great, we got married, and you end the chapter with and then things really didn't go well and we broke up or we got divorced or you know I lost my partner. That kind of story which starts positive and ends negative is what psychologists call a contamination sequence, where something started out wonderful, but got contaminated. Instead of that, if we break the chapter so that we're starting with the negatives, we're starting with the things that didn't go well, and we end the chapters on ways in which we found the positive or things that uh, new opportunities opened up to us in some ways, psychologists call this a redemption sequence. And because all our lives have ups and downs, it's up to us to decide where we're drawing the chapter breaks, where we're putting the chapter breaks in our book. And the advice here is that the more redemption sequences you have and the fewer contamination sequences you have, as you look back and review the story of your own life, as you tell your story to yourself, to other people, the more redemption sequences you have, the higher your well-being and mental health. It's really interesting. Thinking back to what we were saying just a moment ago about this this kind of anxiety zeitgeist that uh, that we're in today, it's it yeah. it almost feels like uh, we've all written ourselves cliffhanger endings to every one of our chapters. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, but I, I would actually go further to that and say that I think in general, the way we often process our lives and the way the news media presents uh, the world to us is often a story of contamination. It's a story of like, you know, everything was hunky-dory in this place and then suddenly something bad happened and look uh, look what's happened to the place now. Uh, and yes, there's an element of surprise or suspense in that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But often the story that we hear in the news is a story of something that has gone wrong and something that has emerged that has become bad. And, you know, I, I don't fall journalists for doing this. The, the role of journalists is to alert us when when something is going on in the world that we need to hear about. But unintentionally, I think this has the psychological effect of, of, of telling us that we're living in a world where constantly things are breaking or going bad or in, in, in a terrible place and heading to a worse place. I don't think that's very good for our mental health. And ironically, even though I think we often tell those stories as journalists in order to, you know, to engage people in the news and get them more involved, it almost has a paradoxically, you know, uh, counterintuitive effect of actually turning people off and making people apathetic or saying, throwing up their hands and saying, what can I do about this? And I think what's true about the news is also true about our own lives. When we tell stories about our own lives that are constantly, you know, harping on how something that was wonderful turned bad, I think we are doing ourselves and our psychological makeup a disservice. The The series is titled Healing 2.0. Do yeah. you look at, is, is resilience a, a subset of healing in your mind? It is a subset of healing in our mind. We, we certainly talk about resilience. Uh, there is an episode in the package that talks about the, the likelihood of, of resilience and sort of in some ways, you know, when you think about the long history of human beings, I don't mean over the last 10, 20, 30, or even 100 years, but if you look at over the, the many thousands of years that we have been on the planet, you know, our story as a species is a story of resilience. We have overcome tremendous hardships, tremendous obstacles. Uh, it's been an uphill climb, uh, you know, for much of that way. And yet we are the, you know, we are here and we are the descendants of people who have survived. Uh, our ancestors were survivors, which is why you and I are on the planet today. Um, and so resilience is a very important part of the story. And in some ways, I think it's an undercounted part of the story. Uh, in, in that I think many of us sort of imagine that we are, you know, we have more fragility than actually might be the case. There is quite a lot of talk, obviously, about mental health care access um, everywhere, but especially in rural places like the one from which I'm talking with you. Um, is there something to the idea of this series as giving people a place from which to start? I think that's right. I think that is our aspiration. Our, our goal is to try and present ideas that would be useful. Um, you know, I don't want to suggest in any way, shape or form that what we're offering is a substitute for uh, somebody who is a trained therapist. If people have serious concerns about their lives, if they're having uh, feeling like they're emotionally disturbed, you know, you're not going to be able to solve those problems by listening to a podcast or a radio show. So I want to be humble uh, in terms of what it is that we can offer. I do think that the messages and ideas that we are offering here can, in fact, be very valuable to people uh, and valuable to people across a large spectrum from people who have you know, daily annoyances and frustrations to people who have more serious problems. Uh, but I don't want to suggest that in some ways that we're a replacement uh, for a professional and or a professional who's actually helping you with a problem. Of course not. Yeah. Uh, do you think, is it fair to think of this series in terms of self-discovery, though, or, or introspection? Yeah, I think probably more by way of introspection than, than self-discovery. Uh, you know, one of the ideas that we want to explore in the, that we explore in, in the series is uh, follows the work of uh, an Australian psychologist whose name is Lucy Hone. And uh, Lucy suffered a terrible tragedy in her life. She lost her own daughter in a car crash. 
uh, but she's also a psychologist and a researcher and spent a lot of time sort of thinking about the research into grief and introspecting about her own experience with grief after this terrible tragedy, you know, befell her. And, and one of her insights, and I think this is an insight that does come from introspection, uh, and it's and it precedes uh, Lucy Hone and modern psychology. In fact, it's an insight that you see in many spiritual traditions dating back hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, and and that and that idea is that the thoughts that we have, uh, how we respond to the things that happen to us, matter enormously. You know, we can't always control the things that happen to us, but we do, in fact, have significant control over how we think about what's happened to us. I was reading a, a book the other day that that talked about an idea from Buddhist uh, philosophy, uh, and it, it was called The Story of the Two Arrows. And the idea of the two arrows is that apparently the Buddha said that, you know, through as you go through life, you're often going to be struck by arrows. Things are going to happen to you. Negative things are going to happen to you. But when you're struck by an arrow, the last thing you want is to compound the injury by plunging a second arrow into the site of the first injury. And yet that is exactly what many of us do. When we are struck by misfortune or by by difficult things happening to us, we compound that injury through our thoughts, the way we think about this, through our regret and recrimination, our lack of self-compassion. And in some ways, the second arrow is not just uh, you know unnecessary. It's also in some ways especially painful because it's an arrow that's of our own doing. It's it's we have caused that arrow to happen. So I do think that in some ways, when we introspect, I think when we think about even the events that happened to each of us over the last day or two, any of us can think of moments when we had setbacks. Perhaps they were minor setbacks, but we can very quickly see how many of us reach for that second arrow and then plunge the second arrow into exactly the same spot as the first arrow, compounding our own suffering. So I think that's an idea that has sort of universal resonance, and it's a theme that I think occurs through many episodes of this series. Well, Shankar Vedantam, uh, first of all, I wish you a, uh, a, a holiday season uh, as free from anxiety as possible, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mish. Really happy to be on. Shankar Vedantam is the host of the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show, which airs on NCPR Sunday afternoons at 3. The show's Healing 2.0 series has been airing throughout the month of November. You can find a link to the archive at ncpr.org northwards. One more break, and then we'll talk with Tiffany Soricelli about life, music, and how she uses her life around music and finance to help artists continue to make a living. This is Northwards from NCPR. Northwards on NCPR is supported by the Wild Center in Tupper Lake, now accepting donated clothing from North Country farmers and agriculturalists for a new art installation from Brenda Baker coming 2024. Details at wildcenter.org clothesline. You can subscribe to the Northwards podcast and get a new interview delivered to you on your mobile device or computer every Friday. Find out how at ncpr.org northwards. This is NCPR North Country Public Radio. It's Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. I always thought it would be cool to be a musician. I mean, I played saxophone in my high school jazz band, and we won a couple of festival awards. But after that, I pretty much became a guy who listens to music rather than making it. 
But I have interviewed a whole lot of musicians in the last couple of decades, and I noticed something interesting that subtly changed 10, maybe 15 years ago. The process of writing and making music, maybe from a technical standpoint, has been different, but it, it has largely been consistent, writing, recording, getting it out to the public. But the life of many musicians outside the studio has changed, and it makes me wonder when any of them actually have time to write and make music. With fewer major label contracts supporting musicians, a lot of them these days are juggling music with publicity, with distribution, and with money management. And while some of them might enjoy managing their social media feeds, very few of them went into music because they like financial spreadsheets. That's what makes Tiffany Soricelli such an interesting person to talk with. She went to the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam because she wanted to go into vocal performance. But somewhere along the line, and we'll hear how it happened in just a few minutes, she shifted her career from making music to helping musicians and other artists manage their resources so they can keep enjoying what they do. Tiffany Soricelli, welcome. I am so excited to be here. Do I have this right? Did did you have your first um, professional singing uh, adventure when you were eight? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I think it was probably closer to nine. So when I was eight, I um, I came home from school one day and it was like the talent show signups were there. And I came home and I said, you know, mom, I'm going to sing in the talent show. And I remember her reaction was like, wait, c- can you sing? <laughs> and nobody in my family is musicians. You know, we had some piano lessons. Um, my mom's second cousin was in the run of Cats hmm. on Broadway. But like that's as close as our family had gotten. So this came out of left field, and uh, she was like, okay, if you want to. So I practiced at home with one of those big old boxy karaoke machines and a (laughs) microphone and got a big old flashy dress. And in my second grade talent show, I sang Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All in front of a whole auditorium of people. And so that was that. And so after that, my parents were like, okay, so this is like a thing. You could do this. (laughs) And in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, there was a really popular dinner theater, uh, the Dutch Apple Dinner Theater. And um, they were doing a run of Meet Me in St. Louis. And I auditioned and I got the role of young Tootie in the family. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I just fell in love with theater and musical theater and singing and continued performing pretty much like all of my developmental years in and around Pennsylvania where we grew up. And then uh, when my family relocated to Long Island, uh, I was still very active in theater out on Eastern Long Island before coming to college at Potsdam. But this is really one of those cases where it's not like you had a family full of artists <laughs> who were who were understanding what the journey would be like. You were kind of you were the pioneer. Yeah, I was. It was like the opposite of the middle child syndrome, right? <laughs> Instead of fading to the background, I stepped into the spotlight um, and just totally uh, made it my entire identity and, and 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 had a lot of fun doing it. Are, are you the middle child? I am the middle child. <laughs> what, did, what did the older and the younger uh, think of this whole thing? Um, at the time, there was a lot of like, shut up, Tiff. Stop practicing, <laughs> Tiff. Stop singing along. And then as we grew older, we would all sing along to the soundtracks. That, we would all take different characters of like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat or Phantom or something. And we would all read the, this is when there were liner notes in oh, the yeah. CD cases. <laughs> we would lay there and we would read the CD cases and we would take turns singing the different parts just all together. I think that's the 
the thing that I miss the most about the CD and the I mean, you know, I've got vinyl, I have CDs in my office, but you know, when you're when you're online, like there are too many clicks to get to to like sit there and look at the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, the supportive documentation. It's there, but you have to like find it. <laughs> um what did what was kind of your expectation when you got to Crane um, for where your musical life would go? I so having gone to high school in Long Island, my my music teacher um, Esther Scott, who she's passed away, but she's beloved here in the North Country as well. Um, why why is she beloved here? In the oh, North she country? she taught so many. She was Patty Lapone's teacher. Um, in, in Northport, she lived here. The, the Scott family uh, lived here. Uh, she moved back here. She lived across from the Potsdam campus, um, active in the community. Yeah, she she just did a ton. This um, is where I here. lack institutional memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, she uh, passed away at the ripe age of uh, 96. Wow. And uh, it was, yeah, she's a matriarch in my life. But um, so she was recommending that I go to Crane for college uh, for vocal performance. And I did my research and I was like, okay, Stephanie Blythe went to Crane and Renee Fleming went to Crane. So clearly there's some like success leaves clues. Um, And at the time, I just thought I was only going into opera. I was only going into performance. And it was like I was so dead set to come to Potsdam and Crane. I auditioned on the island. I never came to the campus until I moved in. And my dad and I got terribly lost somewhere outside of Albany. This is back before GPS was on your phone or even your dashboard. <laughs> and we were looking at the atlas and we we're looking looking at the maps and we're like, we're on Route 9. Why can't we find this? And then I'm like looking up the map and I'm like, oh, yeah, we got to keep keep going, right? Long Islanders truly had no sense of the size of New York State. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, success leaves clues. And, you know, that was the next I was pointed in that direction and thought here I go I want to do full-time performance all the time and (laughs) well I got I got to um I got to Potsdam absolutely fell in love and I became very curious right in my very first semester of what the career as a as a as a performer really looks like and at this time right 10 years of internalized starving artist trope <laughs> you know pumped into my mind people are like oh you're going to college for vocal performance like <laughs> you better be good at waiting tables right that's just the stuff that you hear all the time when you say i'm a musician or i want to do this so when i was in school and i was Oh, gosh, even at my audition, I was heavily, heavily influenced to add an education major. In fact, um, Floyd Callahan, who was on the, the, the committees doing the auditions on Long Island, was like, oh, we're just going to add education to her, her application anyway. And I remember Esther Scott went in and was like, nope, absolutely not, Floyd. Um, but yeah, so I, there was a lot of pressure to add something else. And so I began getting really curious about the, the industry, the life of a singer and Potsdam has a music business program. So I decided to add a music business double major uh, right in my first year. Um, But at the time, I think it was very product focused. And I was very interested in going more of the arts admin side. But the whole the whole notion that that these other people had, uh, whether it's waiting tables or or adding an education major, was that an artist really can't make a living just as a performer unless things go really really right. Right, right. It's it's we're all being taught you need a plan B and a plan B like while plan A is still going on. Yeah, yeah, and and I think a lot of artists continue to do that, create side hustles, multiple revenue streams. Um, when I added the administration major, 
you know, I went through my four years. I graduated double major. I actually took a gap year and I worked in New York in an arts administration firm. And for me, that was like peeking under the hood. Like, what do contracts really look like? What is singing at Carnegie Hall really pay? And it was really eye-opening. And, and then that's when I started to get the sense that even when you quote unquote make it, even when you have an international career and management and all of the glamour that comes along with it, it's hard. It's really hard. And there, the the artists that we were supporting on our on our roster were very frustrated. And I just thought, how can you be so angry about succeeding in a career that you purportedly love? Why do you hate it so much? Because they were miserable. And it was just a lot of that fear and anxiety and burnout of having to leave your family on Christmas Day to go sing a Messiah in Salt Lake City, like because you had to. And that for me was a turning point. I, I just, I got off the phone with that client who was really mad about the travel we booked for her. And I thought, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to have to leave my family on Christmas Day to go sing a Messiah in Salt Lake City. And for me, that was a turning point. So instead of pursuing um, a, a master's in performance, I was singing in New York. I was singing with the New York City Master Chorale. I did some soloing with them. But I just thought, oh, gosh, now what? So I went to a headhunter. I really leaned on my uh, music business degree, emphasis on the business side. And uh, and I was placed as the second assistant to the owner of an $11 billion hedge fund. So that, for me, was a huge – it was just complete different worlds, leaving classical music and the arts, going into financial sector. And that was a major turning point in my life. You went to work for this hedge fund uh, and, and, and turned away from the classical music. Uh, but here you are today uh, working with musicians. So, so talk about that, that, that transitional period where, where you started working in finance and how it led you back to music. So I'll give you kind of like the Cliff Notes version because this is like 15 years of my young adult development where I spent a lot of time banging my head on my desk. So here I am. I have a bachelor's of music. I am working as the second assistant to an $11 billion hedge fund owner now, making more money than I ever thought. Um, I think I made more than my mom at the time. And I just thought, well, I'm not thinking. I'm not using my brain. I'm not using my degree. And I'm so far afield. Then as life has it, I got engaged. My now husband was coming back to Crane to do his master's. And I was like, okay, well, I don't really want to do education, but that gets me back to music. So I came and did a master's in music ed, finally getting that ed degree that Floyd wanted me to. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I, the Orchestra of Northern New York was looking for a business manager. And I remember meeting with the lovely Vernice Church, and she was like – I mean, I feel like sometimes it was like I had industry experience, I had the degree and the background, and I was young and energetic and had a pulse, right? Like, they're <laughs> like, she can do it. But for me, it was baptism by fire. I had the opportunity as the business manager there to work with Ken Andrews so closely, um, who was a great mentor, and do everything, ticketing and fundraising and everything. And I, having just come from Wall Street, was very comfortable talking about money. So I remember creating partnerships with St. Lawrence Chocolates at the time, and I met with, with – um, Jenny and Brian Walker. And we started having after parties at the 1844 house and really looking to create multiple revenue streams and sponsorships and community partnerships through the art institution. And I thought, aha, here is a way that I can combine music and and my my background in the arts. And then as life has it, uh, my husband's job um, was accessed where he was teaching in Malone, and we ended up in the capital region. And so I, I stayed in fundraising for about another six years, so about a decade in fundraising altogether. And I loved it. I just thought, wow, if like normal people had access to this team of experts, tax planning, helping them achieve their goals, educating them about the opportunities that are out there, like more people could become philanthropists or whatever. So then I... Uh, this early 30s, I decided I'm going to totally change careers. I have a master's of music right now, and I'm going to become a financial advisor. 
so I started studying for my licensing and credentialing. And as life has it, I ended up opening my first financial planning firm in my third trimester with my first child. <laughs> because why not? Why not do everything at the same time? Um, and uh, and it was just a wonderful learning experience. And I love I've always been that geek around finance. I was that friend person in our friend group where, like, when people were getting mortgages, I was like, ooh, let's talk about your options. Like, even before this was my job, um, you know, telling the people younger than me, like, okay, a Roth IRA is this, and you should save here. And so I was just always a geek about this, and I thought I could actually help people. Now I have an education master's. I know how to teach. I know how to assimilate this information in a way that it's easily understood. And I started um, – working with people and planning for them um, as their financial advisor. So that was in 2015, and it's really grown since. And because my experience as, as a working artist and most of my peer groups are also artists, the same challenges and problems started coming up when I'd be meeting with them and talking about it. It's living on an inconsistent income stream, planning for the future, building projects. How do you fund your life and your career? And I started thinking, wow, when you go and get a bachelor's and master's in music, you don't have a class on this. We're not being taught how to pay your taxes as a freelancer. And that was a huge gap in just my understanding coming into the career. So I developed um, resources. I started teaching in 2018. I formalized virtuoso advising for artists so I could go out, speak, spread the gospel of financial <laughs> literacy really to, to working artists. Because in at my core, like the world needs artists. It needs people to put out art and beauty and their talents to the world. We need them to stay and feel supported and live holy, you know, just wonderful lives. And they need to be able to fund their lives as well while doing it. So if we can educate, if we can provide resources and tools ahead of time to get people on the right track, they can stay in the career longer, which is essentially what this planet needs. Well, yeah, I, w I wonder, because you were talking about your your time in arts administration and seeing how miserable the artists were even Not as all they of were. Them, but some. Sure, <laughs> sure. But I mean, but but it sounds like one of the things that you're trying to do now is is give them the tools so, so they're maybe less miserable. Yeah, so that you can focus on just doing your best work and not so much about living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, putting everything on a credit card and then waiting till that gig pays at your last performance so that you could pay that credit card off and then hold your breath until the next gig comes. Like, it's just so cyclical. And if we can build some systems early on I, and, and, and set people on the right course and honestly, even understanding taxes as a freelancer – Something I say all the time is the IRS is my least favorite charity. <laughs> and people overpay on taxes because they're so scared of getting it wrong. But really, if you're overpaying on taxes, you're robbing your own career. So if you can understand the fundamentals and have systems in place, it can allow you to just focus on creating in your artistic way and then supporting the things that you need in your life, you know, like food and housing <laughs> and, you know, your personal goals as well. Um Interesting thinking of the of the IRS as your least favorite charity. I mean, it is something that people people do tend to, you know, they they hope for that big refund and they don't realize that like the big refund isn't shouldn't be the goal. Yeah, yeah. Or when you're freelancing, when you get a check for five thousand dollars, thinking that five thousand dollars is yours, it's not, right? And so we need to start making plans and making strategies based on real numbers, right? So of that five thousand dollars, taxes comes out, expenses of the career come out. If you have a manager, that comes out, you know. So understanding what your true numbers are, and then being able to build a life that is within those boundaries, or or if not, figuring out the revenue streams that gets you to the goal and the lifestyle that you want. What are the other mistakes that you, you you often encounter artists making when they come to you? Hmm. I think that there's 
especially I work with a lot of performers and there is this expectation you need to look a certain way or you need to buy couture or you need to, you know, especially going into auditions. Um, I think it's good because more and more companies are saying like they don't care if you're wearing Louis Vuitton shoes. Um, but there's this expectation that they need to spend a lot of money to look a certain way to build that brand. And yes, brand development is important, but you don't have to spend a lot of money to get there. And in fact, the best case, the best practice is live like a student when you're a student, live like a student when you're a young artist, live like a student when you're building your career until you're at a place where you're not having to constantly leverage debt, right? You have money built up in your business account, you've got money built up in your personal account, and you can sustain and live a lifestyle that your art and artistry can support. I think a lot of people aren't looking forward. We constantly have to pay ourselves back. Do you think, I mean, should these things be part of arts education, part of music education from an earlier point? I mean, you know, I'm not talking about, I, I think your your husband teaches, you know, high school music. Yeah. And I, that, it seems like unlikely that this would come up in high school chorus. But, you know, for people who are taking uh, music seriously in college, do you think these are things that they, they need to learn before they get to the point where they're graduating and have to find you? Absolutely. It's, it's really just entrepreneurship 101. You know, if you're pursuing a creative um, a career path as an individual, as an ensemble, as a studio artist, you know, you need to understand the fundamentals of entrepreneurship, right? You are your own employer. And our relationship with money changes in different stages of life. So if you start this conversation too early, there's no concept of money and how it works. And it goes in one ear and out the other. Um, I've worked with high schoolers in D.C. at a dance um, at the dance lab there in the Kennedy Center. And it's a very different conversation than, <laughs> you know, people starting their lives as young adults. But I do believe that money and financial literacy is is a muscle, just like everything else we do in this career. It takes practice. It takes repetition to get good at it. The sooner that we can begin that practice, you know, in undergrad, right, have a semester on entrepreneurship, funding your life as an artist, um, financial literacy 101. But it does dovetail with good business practices. What's a profit and loss statement? Why is it important? How does it tie into your Schedule C for your taxes? All of these things are, are really essential to building and thriving as a freelancer or as a career in the arts. Is, is there something about the arts today that makes this especially relevant? I mean, have, have things changed? Uh, you know, not that you can think back on, you know, like the 1950s or 60s here, um, but I mean, having interviewed um, a number of musicians, many musicians over the years, you know, almost to a person, they say, you know, they didn't get into this business so that they could be their own marketer or their <laughs> own, you know, or their own financial advisor. Um, but that's really something you can't get away from, it seems, at this point. It's the, the industry, all industries have changed so much. And we're going to continue to see change with technological advances, AI and that kind of thing. But, you know, there was a time when you could win the Met competition and then kind kind of get that white glove treatment and not have to actually do anything. <laughs> and that was a lot. I mean, I think that stopped with Maria Callas. Um, <laughs> but it, the, the thing is, is now is that the career is so much performing in general, so much more expensive. Um, you need to have updated headshots all the time. You need to have reels if you're auditioning for movies. You need to have, you know, things on your website. You need to have a website. You need to keep that updated. You need to have branding, social media, all of these things. Like, it is a constant barrage. Oh, and then you just have to also maintain your artistic integrity and do your job. Like, <laughs> there's there's so much demand on working artists these days in terms of um, what is required of them. And and really, I, I, it's it's totally different. Um, and, and the upfront costs are so much different as well. Not to mention the 
the economy that we live in is totally different than it was, <laughs> you know, 40 years ago. And cost of living over the last 40 years has increased at 117 percent, I believe. But artist pay has certainly not kept pace like most other salaries. Okay. When you think about the when you think about the the Tiffany that was on stage at age uh, nine in Lancaster or or twelve on you know the the giant stage in Stroudsburg or or wherever, um, uh, and you think of the enjoyment that you got out of doing that, what makes you happiest today about this life that you have? That's a really good question. What makes me happiest now is helping uplift and keep other people doing their best work. I I still sing. I sing in the Capital Region. I sing with my children all the time. Uh, but performance is not where my heart is right now. It is really in up-leveling, providing more resources. Um, I, I want to completely eradicate that starving artist trope. And when I get a, a text or an email from someone that says, Tiff, this is a true um, thing, Tiff, I no longer cry on my bathroom floor about money anymore. Like you've changed my life. To me, right, it's the ripple effect. I've impacted that one person who's going to go out and create art and beauty and impact the world. And when we multiply that by the hundreds of students that I have the privilege of supporting and coaching each year, it, it grows. It's it's really beautiful. It, it has to be something to be to be helping them in this way and then go see them perform. Yeah. And, and to that aim, right, I have a completely separate business that now, you know, I, I own an asset management firm. I've, I've launched that entirely on my own. So I build the education through the education company, Virtuoso Advising for Artists. And when and if they want support from someone who knows and understands that working artist lifestyle, financial planning, asset management, we have the RIA, the Registered Investment Advisory Services, dedicated to working artists. We're the first RIA in the country exclusively dedicated to working with artists and supporters of the arts. And through that, we continue to make impact by providing those professional services. Tiffany Sorosali, thank you so much for for making the trip up to uh, to to see us. Thank you for having me. This is this I love NCPR. I've always still tune in in the Capital Region. <laughs> it's just my absolute favorite. So it is a privilege to be here and speaking with your listeners. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Tiffany Soroselli is the CEO of Virtuoso Advising for Artists and of Virtuoso Asset Management in Saratoga Springs. She's also a graduate of SUNY Potsdam's Crane School of Music and is on the school's board of trustees. You can learn more about what she does at ncpr.org northwards. That wraps up the November edition of Northwards with hopes that your Thanksgiving weekend has been a joyful one. Digital oversight of this show comes from Ethan Shanty and Bill Hanel. Caitlin Kelly does our social media. Doyle Dean shoots video. Our theme music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. And I am Mitch Tyke, your humble host and producer. Thank you so much for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and the Beat Authority. Have a great weekend. <laughs>